0: Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 120, King the Conqueror. Just a quick reminder, the episode 125 AMA is still coming up. Please send questions about the History of Persia, podcasting, me, or technically anything else to historyofpersiapodcast.com or DM them on social media especially any lingering questions you have about Alexander the Great and the Achaemenids. Last time, we followed the voyage of Nearchus and his fleet as they explored the southern coast of their new empire, discovering many strange, exciting, and challenging things in the Arabian Sea and the Persian Gulf. In the episode before that, we followed the end of Alexander the Great's Indian campaign, his near-death experience at the hands of the Malians, his disastrous crossing of the Gedrosian Desert, and his outrage at the state of Pasargadai and the satrapies of Persis and Susiana more generally. Today, we are picking up with Alexander at Susa. Naarchus and company have just returned for some much-needed bathing and shaving, and the lord of all Asia is scheming away. We've spent a lot of time talking about Alexander's conquests, but now, those are on hold for a bit, and the great conqueror actually had to stop for the first time since he became king and try his hand at governing an empire. To be fair, Alexander left a trail of more or less competent administrators in his wake, and he had left Antipater back in Macedon as regent. But Alexander himself had been at war for his entire adult life. From his very first battle at Chaeronea when his father was still king of Macedon in 338, All the way down to his return from India 14 years later, Alexander never actually stopped to rule his territory for more than a few months at a time. He was a great general, no doubt about it, but as an administrator, well, he was no Darius. One of the overarching themes of Alexander's reign since the death of Darius III was a constant push and pull between the Persianizing, or even just broadly Orientalist influences on the king and his court, and the traditionalist Macedonian faction. Modern historians generally agree that the extent of Alexander's ...forced Persianization is exaggerated in the ancient accounts, and probably mixes with more generic self-aggrandizement that they then blamed on Persianization. That they then blamed on Persianization. Still, the sheer volume of stories demonstrates that Alexander was pushing hard to integrate his original Greco-Macedonian subjects with the culture and society of the old Achaemenid realm. To that end, one of Alexander's first acts upon returning to Susa was to orchestrate the greatest wedding any of them had ever seen. As we established back in episode 116, the king himself had finally taken a wife in the form of Roxana, daughter of the Sogdian warlord back in 326 BC, Now, he would have two more wives. First, he did the obvious thing and married Statera, the elder daughter of the late great king Darius III. However, Alexander also married Parasadus the Younger, the youngest daughter of Artaxerxes III, and presumably the last remaining unmarried woman from that branch of the Achaemenid family. This is, of course, a strategy we have seen before, most notably with Darius the Great marrying all of the female descendants of Cyrus the Great. By forming these unions, Alexander ensured that any descendants from the most royal branches of the Achaemenid family tree would also be his descendants. He may even have intended to follow in Darius the Great's footsteps and make his first son by one of these Achaemenid women his heir. From their own perspectives, that would certainly have been this latter-day Statera and Perisotus' goal. For one, in the Persian tradition, being queen mother meant being powerful. But perhaps more importantly, if Alexander's succession hinged on having Achaemenid roots, then whichever of these women became queen mother would have the opportunity to de facto restore her dynasty. However, Alexander did not go for the full Achaemenid dukshish hat trick. You see, this was not only Alexander's wedding. Instead, Alexander set out to arrange marriages between all of the most noble Macedonian and Greek officers and Iranian or Mesopotamian wives. Alexander had his nearest and dearest companion Hephaestion, Mary Drapetus, the younger daughter of Darius III, because, as Arian puts it, he wanted to be uncle to Hephaestion's children. Make of that whatever you want. This mass wedding ceremony also serves as a convenient opportunity for me to catalog the major players of the young Macedonian Empire and do a sort of abbreviated tour of Alexander's whole domain. For example, after their return to Persis, Alexander named Hephaestion Kiliarch of the entire empire, which literally means leader of a thousand, but had come to mean a sort of second-in-command. Hephaestion was officially Alexander's right-hand man in all things on top of his existing role as a general and commander of the Somatophula case, Alexander's personal bodyguard of seven Macedonian nobles. Craterus, long one of the most senior generals in the Macedonian army and frequent royal advisor, was married to Amastris, a niece of Darius III. He was also selected to replace Antipater as Alexander's regent, really more of a governor by this point in Macedon and Greece. Antipater would then trade places with Craterus and join Alexander as a general for any future campaigns. Perdiccas... A Sumataphulax, under Hephaestion and another of the empire's premier generals was married to a daughter of Atropides, the Persian satrap who managed to retain his position as a governor in Media. Of course, not everyone could marry an Achaemenid princess, because there simply weren't enough to go around. But you can start to see how Alexander was playing politics here. Craterus was going to rule on the home front, so he got the last available Shish. Perdiccas had the slightly less elite task of continuing to be a general and a bodyguard, but he was still one of Alexander's favorites, so he was married to one of the last remaining Persian satrapal families. Ptolemy, like Perdiccas, has been a recurring general and one of the somatophulacase throughout the war. So he was married to Artacama, daughter of Artabasis, former Achaemenid satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia and later Alexandrian satrap of Bactria. The latter was an extremely prestigious position, at least in Persian eyes, so, his daughter married Ptolemy. Eumenes of Cardia, technically Alexander's personal assistant, had developed into a successful commander in his own right, and he was also married to a daughter of Artabasis, elevating him far beyond his original status as a private secretary hired by Alexander's father to become one of the premier nobles in the entire empire. Nearchus married Barsine, daughter of the late Rhodian admiral mentor and one-time marriage prospect of Alexander himself. Barsine, noticeably, also had a young, illegitimate son already, and historical rumors identified the boy named Heracles as a bastard child of Alexander himself. Maybe Nearchus was put in that match because Alexander really trusted the admiral. Or maybe he just thought that the couple would at least have sailing in common. Finally, the commander of the Hupaspists, Seleucus. Variously pronounced as Seleucus, Seleucus, however you want to say it, I'm going to say Seleucus was married to Apama, the daughter of the Sogdian warlord Spitamenes. I think this is literally the first time I have mentioned him in all of the stories of Alexander's conquest. So you may be wondering why he was important enough to get mentioned at all. Well, as commander of the king's shield-bearers, Seleucus so was often in command of the most dramatic and crucial infantry battles. But his overall authority was also routinely usurped by Alexander himself, since the hippospists were the unit that the king would fight with when leading infantry. So Seleucus inadvertently kind of gets glossed over during a lot of those battles, because when his job is important to history, Alexander steals the spotlight. And that only scratches the surface. Arian says that 80 other officers and nobles married their royally designated eastern matches that day, and Alexander directed his court to catalog approximately 10,000 existing marriages between Greco-Macedonian soldiers and eastern women. But of course, not every important noble in the Empire was single, or even available to come to Susa and get married. Probably one of the most important examples was Antigonus Monophthalmos, the One-Eyed, who we haven't seen since episode 107. Or to put that another way, a full decade ago when Alexander left him behind as the Macedonian satrap of Greater Phrygia. From his position in central Anatolia, Antigonus has been busy as the leading Macedonian general to put down rebellions among the conquered satrapies of the north, and he was working to extend Macedonian influence into regions like Bithynia and Armenia. The Macedonian army had just kind of skipped those parts of the Black Sea coast and the Caucasus during their conquest. And even though the local rulers had tentatively submitted to Alexander's rule, there was no Macedonian military presence in those satrapies to speak of. Armenia was still under the control of a cadet branch of the Achaemenid family, and since Atropides was their main neighbor in the east, it fell to Antigonus to exert Macedonian influence in the Black Sea region. Interesting to note that Orontes, satrap of Armenia, appears to have died while Alexander was away, and had been succeeded by Mithrenes, a son or other relative who had sided with Alexander just before Galgamela. In addition to prestigious marriages, Alexander also honored four of his followers with golden laurel wreaths in honor of their achievements in the recent wars. In the last episode, I noted how Nearchus and his helmsman, Onesicritus both received this award. It was also granted to the seven Samadophulakes. We've already met Hephaestion, Perdiccas, and Ptolemy. The golden wreath was also given to Lysimachus, one of the eldest remaining officers in Alexander's high command, who had previously served Philip II in the same role, and to Phaethon, who commanded the river fleet in India alongside Nearchus. Two of the Somatophula case were even awarded double honors. Leonidas was both a bodyguard and the general who subdued the Oretai and secured Nearchus' supplies in the last episode. He was also the younger cousin of the treasonous Alexander Lenkesteos, who nearly assassinated King Alexander during the siege of Halicarnassus and the officer who calmed the royal women when they were captured in the Battle of Issus. Finally, Paeacestas, who had done the most to defend Alexander as he was wounded by the Malians, received a second golden laurel on top of his promotion to satrap of Persis. While at Susa, Alexander also staged a parade review of his epigonoi literally the inheritors. A force of 30,000 young men from Persia and the rest of Iran who had been selected and trained as Macedonian-style phalangites after the lord of all Asia conquered their homelands. Alexander had more than proven the efficacy of Macedonian tactics by that point, but he recognized that he and his successors couldn't just pull troops from Macedon forever. Europe only had so many men to draw on. Training the conquered peoples of the empire from a young age would theoretically increase the strength of their armies. In addition to the Epigonoi. Alexander allowed his new subjects' cavalry to integrate and train in the style of his Hattairoi horsemen, drawing from all over conquered Iran, and Persian nobles who had surrendered and joined Alexander's court were appointed as officers, including Fratifernes, still the satrap of Parthia, and Histospes, identified as a Bactrian and possibly the very same who had once served Artaxerxes and Darius III as Carinos of the northeast. Through all of these festivities at Susa, Alexander and Satrap Pukestis were dressed in traditional Persian garb. Possibly the ornate and ancient Elamite robes that the Achaemenids had reserved for special occasions, but more likely their typical trousers and tunic style. Either way, all of this was a ghastly insult to some of the Macedonian traditionalists. Despite all their victories, Alexander's celebrations made it look like a Persian king and a Persian army had simply adopted Macedonian warfare, and now ruled all of southeastern Europe on top of their old empire. This was an obviously short-sighted view. They couldn't possibly hope to actually rule an empire of this scale without integrating some of the conquered peoples. But Alexander's penchant for Iranian aesthetics was aggravating to some of his most established supporters. Finally, before departing Sousa, Alexander declared a jubilee, paying off the debts for everyone present right out of the royal treasury. You may be thinking, wow, that's extremely generous, or that's one hell of a bribe, both of which would be true But this wasn't actually that spectacular in context. Ancient leaders, especially in West Asia, had paid off the debts of their entourage and army after taking power, or simply declared all debts to be null and void for centuries. If anything, Alexander's debt forgiveness program was much more limited than some of the kings who came before him though it is still better than the U.S. Department of Education. Afterward, Alexander dispatched Hephaestion and a small army to make way and then sailed after him with the core members of the court, taking the Karun River to the coast of the Persian Gulf before turning up the Tigris and sailing through southeastern Mesopotamia. This was the last major region of the empire he had not visited. Following the Battle of Gaugamela on the northern banks of the Tigris, Alexander had crossed diagonally to Babylon and then diagonally again to march on Susa. Now he would make his presence felt in southern Mesopotamia and the central Tigris. And we will follow that journey after a break. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them. But just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. Available on desktop or as an app, it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off. Unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. As Alexander sailed up the Tigris, this royal river cruise kept having to stop and navigate over and around Weir's, a sort of flow-over dam that alters the flow of a river. You see these all the time in sections of river or stream that pass through a public park or major city. They usually look like a small artificial waterfall, in the middle of the current. Often, they have a mechanism to increase the amount of water and make it level so boats can pass, either in the form of a nearby canal or actually moving the weir itself. One benefit of a major waterway connected to the sea, like the Tigris, is that a weir prevents boats from sailing upriver unless somebody increases the water flow, essentially preventing, say, pirates or invading navies from sailing up the river unopposed. Alexander and company identified this problem and demanded that all the weirs be demolished. Arian praises this for allowing the Tigris to return to its natural course. However... You know what weirs do the 99% of the time the river isn't being invaded? They prevent rapids from damaging boats and prevent flooding. Unsurprisingly, the Mesopotamians appear to have reinstalled their barriers soon after Alexander left. The king met back up with Hephaestion's forward army at the city of Opus, north of modern Baghdad, where the Tigris and Euphrates are closest to one another. There, Alexander decreed that any man who had been disabled by combat or disease, and any men who had aged beyond their required military service, could return home to Greece, Macedon, or Thrace. They could go, be with their families, and Craterus would lead them there on his way to assume his new position as regent in Macedon. Once home, Craterus was to make sure any widows and orphans from the campaign received their deceased husband's or father's pay, and see to it that they would be cared for. This accounted for almost 10,000 of the most veteran soldiers in the army. After they all but mutinied twice in Central Asia and India, you would think this would be cause for celebration. But given that these were also the oldest men in the army, it's no surprise that the men being sent off to retirement were also traditionalists. They began jeering and mocking their king, and whispering about how Alexander planned to replace them with the Apiganoi. Not because they were aging, middle-aged men, but because Alexander didn't want real Macedonians anymore. By the end of what Alexander intended to be a heartfelt farewell, the army was split into loyalists and mutineers, actively threatening to come to blows. Luckily for Alexander, he was a quick thinker and had lots of practice giving inspirational, mollifying speeches to these exact people. So he rose to his feet and began shouting praise for all that they had accomplished, first under Philip II, and then under Alexander in the conquest of Persia. Alexander was able to calm them down, meet with the leaders of the mutiny, and explain that he wasn't trying to replace Macedon with Persia or Macedonians with Persians. He wanted to unify Macedonian rule over the Persian Empire. There was just a lot more Persian Empire than Macedon. Regardless of background, they were free to honor him in Persian or Macedonian style so long as they recognized him as king. That was really the most important part. Tensions cooled and Alexander had his officers, Greek priests, and Iranian magi orchestrate a deliberately hybridized banquet, mixing and matching Eastern and Western aesthetics and ceremony to highlight how they could coexist. During the festivities, several men petitioned Alexander not to be sent back to Europe, for the very simple reason that they had been single when they left, but had married and even had children with women they met somewhere else in the Empire. Arian presents Alexander permitting them to go to their families, wherever they happened to be, as an extra level of graciousness. But personally, I get the sense that Alexander was mostly thinking... Well, of course, I didn't mean the orders that literally. Go back to whoever your wife happens to be. By then, autumn was approaching and Alexander wanted to visit Ecbatana before the frigid mountain winter blocked the roads to and from the city. So they sailed from Opus up the Diala River and then marched through Media to the old capital. There, Alexander held a Greek-style festival and games in the ancient Iranian fortress, featuring Olympic-style athletics, poetry, rhetoric, and drama competitions. However, somewhere between Opus and Ekbatana, Hephaestion, Alexander's closest companion and probable lover, got sick. He was, unfortunately, bedridden through the first six days of the festival. Then, on the seventh day, a messenger raced up to Alexander while he was watching a foot race. Hephaestion was dead. "'Sing, O muse of the wrath of Philip's son, of Alexander!' The destructive wrath which brought countless woes upon the Persians. If you don't recognize that line, I just swapped a couple names out from the opening line of the Iliad. Even in Alexander's time, the most famous and revered of Greek epic poems. But unlike his heroic mythological ancestor Achilles, wreaking vengeance on the Trojan armies for his lost love Patroclus, Alexander could not fight against disease. Instead, he was thrown into sudden mourning. And as Arian puts it, "...the accounts of Alexander's grief at this loss are many and various." Authors who praise Alexander and Hephaestion portray the king as sincere and emotionally crushed. Hostile authors emphasize Alexander's greatest excesses during this time. Supposedly, he flung himself on Hephaestion's corpse and refused to be moved for a full day. He ordered Hephaestion's doctor executed for failure cut his own hair short in emulation of Achilles in the Iliad. Alexander personally drove the funeral carriage to a shrine of the medicine god Asclepius, who had cured death in myth and then burned the shrine down when Hephaestion was not revived. One of the few accounts agreed upon is that Alexander fell into a deep, deep depression. Of course, that's not the word ancient sources used, they had no such diagnostic. But he refused to eat or maintain his personal hygiene for days, just crying and grieving. When the court finally forced Alexander out of this stupor to avoid getting trapped in Ecbatana for the winter, the king sent an emissary all the way to the Siwa Oasis in western Egypt, beseeching the hybrid god Zeus Ammon to deify Hephaestion. They left Media in a grand funeral procession and traveled all the way to Babylon, where Alexander spent 10,000 talents of silver on the funeral pyre and tomb alone and ordered his whole empire to mourn with him, as if a king or perhaps a royal wife had died. He ordered the priests and architects of Babylon to plan grandiose tombs, temples, monuments, and shrines, all dedicated to the newly deified god Hephaestion. But when it was all said and done, Alexander still felt the wrath of Achilles pulling at him. He wanted to kill something. Fortunately for the depressed and enraged lord of all Asia, the Uxians and Kosaians of the southern Zagros Mountains had abandoned their earlier pledges to pay tribute and returned to pillaging caravans that passed through their territories. Normally, this would have been too small an issue for Alexander to lead an army in person, but this time, the king led his forces back into the Zagros ...and murdered any of the rebel peoples that they could find. When he returned to Babylon, Alexander finally sat down and held court. Really held court, like a proper Achaemenid king in an Achaemenid palace ruling the Achaemenid empire would have. He received ambassadors, petitioners, and representatives from many of his subject peoples from Greece to Bactria and everywhere in between, as well as emissaries from many of his new neighbors. The Nubian kingdom of Kush sent representatives, as did several Arab tribes and still independent Indian states. Alexander commissioned infrastructure projects in Babylonia, renovating the Esagila, the great temple to the Babylonian god Marduk, just as Cyrus the Great once had. He surveyed the site for a new canal system and farming estates off the Euphrates. He went on river cruises and generally did kingly things. However, he was still Alexander, and Alexander was first and foremost a conqueror. To that end, by the end of 324, Alexander the Great, king of Macedon and lord of all Asia, had once again turned his attention to the fact that he did not dominate all of Asia, and began plotting his next war. But that will be the topic at hand next time. Until then... If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to The History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.